hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We've had a busy several weeks in the news cycle. Lots of announcements, uh, issues that are popping. I'd say first and foremost that the Biden administration has dropped COVID-19 mandates for government workers and those um, who receive government funds through different sources like CMS. Effectively, the government mandates are over with for a remaining segment of the population that was still worried about COVID-19 vaccines. Um, the other major announcement is that the, the original Pfizer-Moderna vaccines are now off the market. The original Janssen and Novavax vaccines, all four of them were coded against the original Wuhan spike protein. Um, but Janssen and Novavax are still on the market. So completely obsolete. The Pfizer-Moderna bivalent vaccines, uh, of which Moderna, the cumulative dose now is half at 50 micrograms, uh, still has half of the original strain and half BA4, BA5. The Pfizer is the same dose, 30 micrograms, but again, half the original, half BA4, BA5. Those messenger RNA uh, boosters, bivalent boosters, are the featured boosters for the U.S. government now. They're not talking uh, really anything about Janssen or Novavax, and they're suggesting a new program where a booster could be given as a primary initial series, as uh, it's never been tested that way, and that anybody who is uh, out of date of a vaccine would just take a single booster. There's also been a push for uh, a, an annual shot, even though the bivalent boosters uh, theoretically only would last six months. This whole house of vaccine cards is falling. First and foremost, the original vaccines are completely obsolete. For several years, we haven't seen the original Wuhan strain, and the original vaccines have misdirected the immune system against an obsolete uh, target, the uh, original Wuhan spike protein that was devised in the lab in Wuhan, China, by Ralph Barrick at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, the second important point is that um, uh, the BA4, BA5 bivalent uh, vaccines are also out of date. BA4, BA5 has been out of circulation now for nearly uh, six months. And uh, those vaccines failed in the original animal studies uh, to stop uh, Omicron BA4, BA5, and they also failed when the human studies were ultimately done. So we're featuring now obsolete and proven to have failed vaccines with no improvement over safety. So we've had, uh, you know, a torrent of papers. Now, the best source to quote on this is React19. If you go to react19.org, they're chronically in a library of over 3,400 peer-reviewed manuscripts 
uh, listed in PubMed or in the preprint server on vaccine injuries, disabilities, and deaths. Now, there's been a testimony uh, at the uh, European Medicine Association uh, uh, and the um, uh, EU Parliament by Professor Arnie Burkhart. Uh, and if you go to my Twitter feed, P underscore McCullough MD, you'll see a 12-part presentation that Dr. Burkhart made for the members of parliament showing all the tissue destruction that occurs in the heart, the brain, uh, the elastic fibers of the aorta, the immune system, soft tissue, peripheral nerves. He finds the spike protein right there. I thought it was very impressive, these slides showing the spike protein right in the peripheral nerves, uh, no doubt causing the peripheral neuropathy. So, uh, and he concludes, as I have stated multiple times, that when autopsies are done between 70 and 80% of the time, the autopsy is conclusive for the vaccine being the cause of death. So we have that, I think, very, very well established. So glad European Parliament saw that, and hopefully the message is getting to the European medicine agencies. Uh, The world is behaving uh, as if this entire COVID-19 pandemic and its response has become a debacle that is is going to be covered up at multiple levels. You can just see efforts at cover-up, efforts at distraction. The media cycle has almost completely removed any updates on COVID uh, and then moved right into other topics, whether it be a border uh, control here in the United States, uh, the impending a debt limit, potentially defaulting on the debt, and then very importantly, a dramatic shift towards transgender issues, transgender medicine, transsexuals, uh, all the types of distortions that can ripple through society, stories of violence, um, discrimination, recrimination. And uh, I can tell you on the McCullough Report, we are going to pick this up. I am planning on bringing on experts, getting a lot of opinions to move this uh, the conversation out into the open. Uh, we need to talk about it. If we're going to be barraged with information every day on this through the media, and I can tell you in clinical practice, start seeing more and more patients who have gone through gender change, uh, I want to face it head on. So you'll see McCullough Report not backing away from this. McCullough Report is not all about COVID-19. Certainly, the show was born out of the COVID-19 crisis and how to give America the best guidance. But boy, we are going to take on contemporary issues on the McCullough Report. I've brought on a terrific guest, uh, Dr. Alan Moy, uh, former uh, professor of medicine, pulmonary critical care. He's going to give us a lot of insights on COVID-19 pulmonary disease, uh, reasonable vaccine development, how uh, his foundation run, ran into problems with the federal government as they had uh, began to develop their uh, pandemic response ideals that didn't match up with Dr. Moyes. It's really a gripping interview. He's so credible, so solid. You, you're going to really love it on the backside of the McCullough Report. So let's get to it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. One of the biggest advances in nutraceuticals and supplements is Healthy Cell. And the Healthy Cell line is extensive. I typically focus on the microgel technology three major products here, Immune Super Boost, the Focus and Recall, and then the REM Sleep Supplement. Each one of these is complementary, and they can uh, have a role, I think, in the health of your life each and every day. I know they do in my case. Many of you know 
after COVID-19 twice, I spent almost the entire year in 2022 with an upper respiratory tract illness. Now, thankfully, I'm through the first two months of 2023, and I've been diligent with the immune super boost in the morning, followed by focus and energy, and then in the evening time, the REM sleep supplement. The microgel technology works, and boy, does it work fast. So go to our website, America Out Loud Talk Radio, find the banner bar for Healthy Cell, click on it, and that'll take you to the site to get a discount on your purchase of all Healthy Cell products. So let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the program for the first time, Dr. Alan Moy. I'm so excited to meet him with our audience. Dr. Moy received his undergraduate degree at the University of California at Davis. Then he went on to medical school in Nebraska at Creighton University. Uh, from there, he trained uh, at um, uh, St. Louis for um, internal medicine and went on to Iowa for pulmonary critical care. So he's extremely well-trained. He's had a storied academic career. Uh, he's done many other things, including starting a biotech company and a not-for-profit company. Uh, but what I really want Dr. Moy to do is update us on his career and then what has happened to him over the course of the pandemic and how has he successfully navigated? Dr. Moy, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you, Peter, uh, and the invitation to speak to you and your audience. Well, terrific. Well, why don't you take it uh, from here? Um, you know, as the pandemic set in, tell us the foundations of what you did through your career that kind of prepared you for some of the adversity you were about to face. Sure. So um, I was, after I finished my fellowship at the University of Iowa, I uh, stayed on in faculty for about 13 years, and I did. Um, big, I was. I would consider myself a physician scientist with a focus in basic research. My field of research was in actually, uh, which is relevant for COVID. My my area of research was in acute lung injury and sepsis, um, and the uh, and organ target diseases uh, related to sepsis. So we're, I was funded by, my research was funded by NIH and uh, the American Heart and American Lung Association. And so at some point I felt I had done all I can, uh, gone as far as I can. In 2005, I then left academia and started my, um, a series of different uh, organizations um, that sort of insulated me um, pretty well. I started a biotech company with one of my co-founders called Cellular Engineering Technology, and it would focus on um, the manufacturing of adult stem cells uh, and subsequently um, the production of uh, biologics. Um, and so um, the, my academic career um, gave me the foundation to uh, get into stem cell manufacturing. Uh, one of the problems that I observed as a Catholic um, was that there, the healthcare system was uh, historically biased against religious consumers to the extent that, um, to the extent that a lot of the uh, products that were produced by the 
pharmaceutical industry were made from aborted fetal cells and uh, early uh, and embryonic stem cells. And so uh, because of that, I st started a uh, nonprofit called the John Paul II Medical Research Institute. And at first, at first, ultimately, it became uh, a, 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 a medical research organization that was starting to conduct medical research. And we were focused on uh, trying to bring together uh, and solve two, two problems simultaneously, develop uh, morally illicit, ethical uh, human cells that could be used to replace the need for embryonic stem cells and aborted fetal cells, um, and that we would focus on certain therapeutic priorities in the country that were uh, unmet. So neurodegenerative diseases, rare diseases, cancer, and any other common diseases where adult stem cells could be, um, could be of value. And then um, at the same time, I had a, a, a small solo pulmonary practice where I was still conducting uh, ambulatory, private uh, uh, clinical uh, medicine for, for general pulmonary. So I was pretty well insulated um, at that point uh, from being an employee of a healthcare system. Um, and I, I had a lot of autonomy. And then when the pandemic arose, um, uh, we were, I was not involved uh, in any way with vaccine development. Uh, but it was pretty clear once Operation Warp Speed uh, started that the, the, the pharmaceutical companies that were going to uh, be supported uh, to make vaccines against COVID, that, um, that these, these vaccines were being developed in some, in some way through the use of uh, aborted fetal cells. And that became increasingly known among the public. And, um, and so uh, we were being approached by people, donors, uh, regular uh, average people, both in the United States and outside the United States, because we had had a track record of uh, uh, developing technology to address uh, this, this area of biotechnology that touched on uh, these morally illicit cells in, bio, in the pharmaceutical industry. We were approached and encouraged to, encouraged to uh, work on a ethical uh, COVID vaccine uh, that was free of aborted fetal cells. And so this wasn't something that was part of uh, the, what my company or the, the, the nonprofit institute was in, engaged in. So, um, I had to, I was concerned about whether, you know, we should take this on. And so, um, you know, the first thing you do as a medical researcher is you, 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 you have to go back and review, um, the, the literature, um, from review, the clinical literature, review the, uh, the basic literature from the efforts that scientists had uh, developed, uh, in the past 20 years from the point where the, the SARS outbreak came out in 2002 and later the MERS outbreak came out in 2012. And so I, I really um, um, uh, 
dug deep into that literature. I also looked at uh, how this related to the influenza vaccines. I looked at I looked at um, how how vaccines um, uh, how do they trigger the uh, the immune system, particularly when it's in, when you're dealing with respiratory viruses. So um, I, I reviewed hundreds of papers on this background to get me started, and I um, and I. I came to the conclusion that the Operation Warp Street vaccines that were being developed by these pharmaceutical companies would fail to the extent that they would not prevent uh, infection and transmission, which, which was, as you know, were the 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 the, uh, the promises and what uh, for subsequently uh, what was being touted. Uh, by the various uh, public health authorities and uh, by the um, by the government uh, that led to the mandates uh, for various physicians uh, because of the Medicare requirements and for you know military personnel and for uh, schools and employee employers. So that concerned me. And so I started um, uh, writing uh, editorials on this subject. I was a um, supporter and at the very beginning for repurposing drugs. I wrote uh, edit uh, editorials in uh, social media outlets like Doximity to target physicians pr uh, proposing um, the use of uh, anti-malaria drugs as a as a treatment for uh, early COVID, uh, I went on to uh, raise concerns about the the way in which these uh, COVID vaccines um, were um, had significant scientific shortcomings. I went so far to uh, communicate my concerns to uh, in letters to uh, Tony Fauci. Uh, trying to get him to consider using uh, anti-malarial drugs, which in, in the end he ignored. Uh, I I went and uh, tried to talk to Barda about uh, getting some funding uh, for attenuated live vaccines or attenuated uh, vaccines that could be delivered to the respiratory tract. And the reason why I thought that the COVID vaccines were flawed in terms of to the extent that they could not prevent uh, transmission or uh, or could prevent um, <clears throat> prevent disease was because they did not uh, elicit what's called respiratory mucosal immunity, and and that is the way in which natural immunity um, is is is. Uh, Natural immunity is uh, driven uh, under that uh, guise, and so. Alan, can I just ask you a question specifically on that? Yeah. Um, can you think of any examples where, uh, you know, a parentally administered vaccine, a, a shot in the deltoid muscle, gives robust mucosal immunity in the nasopharynx? No, there's none. Um, because. Well, what about well, what about, um, you know, I, I examine this too. What about rubella? 
Rubella seems to be one of the most successful vaccines. Uh, now, the, the way it works is, you know, we focus on, I mean, everybody gets rubella, uh, unfortunately, yeah. but it's really women as they approach their childbearing years, and it reduces congenital rubella syndrome. But does sure. the vac- does the vaccine actually reduce the incidence of the German measles as the upper respiratory infection? You know, I, I, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't specifically looked at that. Um, and do you know if, uh, and, and so um, I don't know if that virus, is it DNA or RNA? Do you know the, the German answer? measles, gosh, I'd have to, I'd have to review that. I mean, but, but as I've looked at it broadly, though, uh, you know, influenza, pneumococcal vaccines, uh, you know, what I've said publicly is basically a shot in the arm doesn't, you know, it doesn't change immunity in the nasal pharynx. I, I, I would agree with that um, because you are not challenging the innate respiratory uh, immunity uh, to elicit um, a, a, a robust immunity um, because any type of respiratory viruses has uh, has to um, ha- has to elicit um, an immune system f- from the uh, nasal pharynx to the lower airways, and so that's uh, and it, it only when it escapes that anatomical region and gets to the alveoli. Um, the lower airways, uh, then your systemic your systemic immunity uh, takes off, and so I mean the the shots in the arm are bypassing the respiratory tract, so it's it's difficult um, for um, the respiratory tract to be sensitized. Where you have both you have redundant antibody and resident T cells and macrophages that are revved up, that can uh, reduce viral replication in the air upper airway, and mm-hmm. and, and so the, the, and the the transmission is dependent upon um, the the viral load and respiratory secretions that are going to be expelled. So if if you so the person who then is is still contagious if they have a sufficient viral load that if somebody's in close contact inhales those respiratory droplets then then there is subject to you know get, having a contagious infection but if the viral if if the respiratory tract is sensitized then the viral loads um, are low because of um, because of a of a absent or reduced um, viral replication, so the the levels or viral loads and and those secretions are low to the extent that they are below the threshold to cause inflict any uh, disease to someone who's a close contact. And of course, that depends. That capacity depends on this, the host factors, and you know if they have chronic diseases. How how good are their uh, respiratory uh, mucosal immunity, um, but unless you challenge, a, unless you have a vaccine that uh, that is delivered to the respiratory tract, um, you're not going to prevent uh, transmission. 
Well, if we have a, a vaccine, there have been influenza nasal mist vaccines. Um, are they any more effective than an influenza shot in the deltoid muscle? Well, I th my understanding is that the flu mists um, that are given to the pediatric uh, population, that they're pretty effective. Um, and as you know, uh, because you're getting a live attenuated uh, virus. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, in, with the uh, with the quaternary inject of annual flu vaccine, you're getting a you're getting a injection into the deltoid muscle, and of course, you're getting it's a subunit vaccine. Uh, so you're getting um, two um, uh, components from A and B, and so you you do get a you do get a multivalent uh, injection in the deltoid that helps to um, helps to uh, immunize your systemic immunity. Uh, but as you know, the problem with the flu vaccines is that um, they, they, they don't pr prevent uh, transmission. Uh, they are really trying to mitigate the symptoms of the disease and the the year-to-year -year variability of how effective they are, you know, is pretty wide. It can be, you know, anywhere from 10 to 60 percent, uh, depending upon how um, how how well we could predict previously uh, what viral strains uh, are going to be predicted for the following year. Mm -hmm. so, uh, but the, the but the but the the thing about the influ influenza vaccines they've been around for many many years they have a clear defined safety profile um, and unlike the COVID vaccines you know we're dealing with an extremely experimental vaccine that is based on uh, genetic uh, gene therapy uh, which has no prior prior safety track record and it's there's only one. Um, one uh, gene, one protein that ultimately in the form of the spike protein that is ultimately ultimately delivered, and if you look at the, all the variants um, over time, I mean it, it's they're very vulnerable in terms of uh, the uh, how those variants leads to mutations in that spike protein, so you can never keep up. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think our listeners can tell by listening to you, you really know your stuff. Uh, you know, I quickly checked up rubella. It's a single-stranded RNA virus, and the vaccine is a live attenuated vaccine. But it's always made sense to me that for nasopharyngeal infections now, um, we would want some type of nasal mist. And I guess, I guess it's a matter of, you know, how thoroughly can you dose somebody that way and would it take, you know, an unfeasible number of doses to do it? A shot in the arm is always attractive. It's kind of, you know, one and done for that, you know, at least for that administration. Uh, but I've been relatively unimpressed you know, outside of rubella with the other vaccines that last year, the MMWR for 2021 reported in 2022, the, the efficacy of the influenza vaccine was statistically insignificant from zero. The same thing was true for the pneumococcal vaccine, at least the the 13 valent pneumococcal vaccine. Um, you know, the outbreaks we've seen with uh, measles and mumps have been in fully vaccinated people. So um, I, I think it's wonderful that a lot of these diseases are at a very low rate. 
and maybe vaccination has participated with improved living conditions and sanitation and other things to play a role. But, but it just seems to me, Alan, that we, we, that the medical community has almost held up vaccination like a talisman, like it's it's something that can't be reviewed, it can't be challenged. This is before COVID. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree that it's been um, vaccines have been treated as sacrosanct, that they're untouchable compared to other medicines. Um, and, you know, there has been very little innovations um, in vaccine technology, and it's not encouraged. Um, uh, so the pharmaceutical companies that have uh, been have entered into this space have enjoyed monopolies to an extent. So there there hasn't been there's there hasn't been uh, a, a lot of encouragement for you know more innovative ways to develop uh, vaccines that maybe maybe uh, at least not as robust as Nat, uh, natural immunity, but maybe could be approached uh, closer to natural immunity. Um, and I, one of the, unfortunately, when you look at all the COVID vaccine candidates that were out there, they they all share um, the same fundamental problem of being subunit vaccines that deliver spike proteins. So when we got involved in this um, it, to this question about whether we should pursue and devote any research to developing a COVID vaccine. Um, at the time, there were about 130 candidates out there and about 95% were uh, focused on some spike protein um, appro subunit approach and maybe 5% were devoted towards uh, killed vaccines. Uh, and there was only one attended with a live vaccine candidate out there. And there, and I had some concerns about the safety of, of that, uh, that, that approach. And so I ended up sending a letter to, um, to the uh, Secretary Azar back in June of 2020 because I was concerned about, you know, that we, these vaccines would still not solve um, our national security threats that might that might come from China or some other country, and that we would be vulnerable, particularly if if there if this was going to be used somehow during in a in a future uh, bio bio warfare um, type of situation. And so um, the uh, the the Department of HHS had me. Uh, talked to um, a Mr. Paul Mango, who was the Deputy Secretary for HSS and the Chief of Staff for Alex Azar, and was involved in Operation Warp Speed. And in that conversation, I raised concerns about these vaccines and that they wouldn't satisfy um, uh, this, uh, this respiratory mucosal immunity issue. And so, the response that I got uh, from um, uh, at uh, the response I got with the uh, with uh, Mr. Mango was they were not really interested in any other types of vac vaccine programs, and they were not interested in, in supporting attenuated uh, respiratory 
uh, attenuated vaccines of any type, whether it's live or uh, or non-replicated types of vaccines. And it was clearly there was uh, a political pressure because it was an election year. And so um, I concluded that there was there wasn't any uh, interest among within the government from the DOD or from NIH and in some of the private sector, mainstream private sectors for an, just another vaccine development program. Um, so that's where, you know, we decided, well, this was too big of a problem for the future to ignore. And so then we decided to, uh, within our nonprofit, to get involved in do, uh, doing uh, attenuated uh, respiratory vaccine research. And so um, our nonprofits uh, devoted uh, some financial resources to that program. Um, and we had um, also solicited um, donors to help fund that. And so this is all after um, I had written all of these uh, different um, uh, uh, public commentaries, either in editorials, in Catholic uh, media, and also on our website. And I was, uh, and we and we did provide some substantial uh, new research, which I can get into later. But all of this uh, led subsequently last year to get um, uh, investigated by the Iowa Board of Medicine. Uh, okay, let's, let's just pause right there. Um, everything was going great until you said that. We're going to pause for a station identification and take a break. Uh, let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. We are fighting the ultimate fight between good and evil. AmericaOutloud.com replaces groupthink with innovative think. Well, it was Walt Whitman, the poet, who said, keep your face always toward the sunshine and shadows will fall behind you. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix Rx. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix Rx nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code out loud at cofixrx.com. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We're talking to Dr. Alan Moy, who's trained in pulmonary critical care. He's a physician scientist 
who's made considerable progress. And I think as our audience can appreciate, he is an expert in upper respiratory tract infections, the pathophysiology and vaccines, and was involved in what sounds to be a very constructive dialogue with HHS to the best he could, and then advanced uh, independently funded scholarship and research. And then the Iowa Medical Board comes knocking. Ellen, what happened? So what happened was um, last year, um, I was approached by, um, well, let me just uh, start with, in, I, as a, as in my medical practice, I provided uh, ambulatory services for uh, a few uh, rural hospitals, uh, critical access hospitals. I provided um, uh, pulmonary ambulatory services to these hospitals. And in February of 2022, um, when the mandates came on board, uh, they asked that all the physicians, including those who were involved in, um, who, who were not employees, but were providing outreach services that they had to get the COVID vaccine. And I said, no, I, I'm not gonna do it. I didn't think it was, I didn't feel comfortable about its safety and certainly not by its efficacy. And as being a Catholic, I said, I wasn't gonna do it. And so I asked for a religious exemption and I was denied. So they basically uh, released me from my, uh, revoked my, my, uh, my, my hospital privileges. And then uh, a few months later, uh, in, they, I got a, a, um, a letter from the Iowa Board of Medicine saying that there was a, a, a anonymous complaint was made that I was spreading misinformation about the COVID vaccines. And what was unique about my situation, because there were a handful of um, other Iowa doctors that were, uh, had investigations open against them because they were uh, advocating early treatment that wasn't considered standard of care in Iowa. And they were also had um, uh, criti criticized um, these COVID vaccines. And so they were investigations against them. So in later in 2022, I received a letter from the Iowa Board of uh, Medicine uh, indicating that I had publicly, uh, through all the, all the things I had said earlier publicly, uh, that I was spreading misinformation. But what was kind of, what was unique about my case was that they were asserting that my misinformation was underscored by a financial conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. That I was promoting, um, I was spreading misinformation out of a, um, a financial conflict of interest uh, through our nonprofit that uh, was trying to dissuade people from using the vaccine, accepting the vaccine for financial reasons, because we were going, we were developing a competitive aversion. Uh, and so they um, were, you know, targeting me and they were also targeting our uh, Catholic nonprofit. And so, it, it, so it, and it was 
uh, was unusual about it was that th they were going after both, but uh, our nonprofit doesn't provide any uh, medical care. It just does research. So it really fell outside the jurisdiction of the Iowa Board of Medicine. But they were using it in, as, a, uh, as an excuse to uh, link me and the Institute somehow together. And so there, there was a lot of uh, concerns whether part of it was uh, a sentiment of anti-Catholic anti sentiment. And so I had to hire a lawyer and I had to, we had to address the, uh, the, the, uh, the complaint and ultimately uh, the best investigation was uh, terminated and it was dismissed. Now, Ellen, uh, how is a religious exemption denied? How does that happen? Well, it's it's arbitrary. With no, with with uh, uh, in my case, it was arbitrary without any explanation. But what uh, a religious exemption? Um, it depends upon how the individual uh, responds uh, to their um, to, to re responds to uh, ask how they are justifying their religious exemption. So if you are a Catholic and you say, well, I'm a Catholic and um, I'm against using aborted fetal cells in any medicine, um, the, the, the entity can come, the institution can come back, well, um, your Pope says it's okay. So if the Pope says it's okay and the Vatican says it's okay, then that's not a good enough excuse. So it depends on how you, you, the person is justifying their um, their request for a religious exemption. And, and instead, what they should say, I taking this vaccine, I'm I am I have a deep spiritual religious conviction not to do this. Okay. So um, and so uh, the Catholic Church came out back in two thousand and five when the uh against the rubella vax the measles vaccine uh because there were concerns that the measles vaccines were developed uh using aborted fetal cells and so uh there were a number of incidences where catholics um learned about the manufacturing process and they were they turned to the uh the vatican for guidance and so what the Vatican in 2005 um, through the Pontifical Academy of Life said was that after review of the ethics and the, uh, and the healthcare implications, they came down with four principles. The first principle was, well, is the disease uh, grave? If the disease is grave, then they, they say, is there, is there an alternative vaccine or treatment to a medicine uh, that is ethical and not tainted with abortion. If there's not, then it, then Catholics are uh, or doctors um, can administer um, a, a morally tainted vaccine, um, and they are that it was morally acceptable, but not morally obligatory. So, in other words, if if a Catholic uh, could 
could still receive approval from the Vatican, but they 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 were also said that they had it was not more morally obligatory and they could refuse a vaccine. So that has been the position of the Catholic Church since 2005 until more recently um, that the Pope basically said that that it was it was a a a, a spiritually a sign of um, love if you take the vaccine because you're going to prevent the spread to others. And so that changed the dynamic. And I think that because the, the Vatican had, had loosened its, its historic position on these vaccines and they were captured by the public health authorities and by the pharmaceutical company that uh, it made it more difficult for Catholics to, you know, get religious exemptions. Do you think, Alan, that if you just said, if you redid your religious exemption more generically, like you outlined, which is say you have a strongly held uh, belief not to take it, and, and didn't make contentions regarding uh, aborted fetal tissue, and then do you think you'd think they would have given it to you? No. No, I basically said I have a, I had to identify my background, identify that that um, I had a, I stated exactly what others had recommended uh, that had others had suggested the wording that exact wording, and that's what I said. But but they were uh, they had denied religious exemption to many. Uh, healthcare workers uh, for from for these religious exemptions. So I wasn't alone in that respect. Um, they just had a generalized policy that they were not going to provide religious exemptions. And uh, and who was this? So this was you know um, a a rural hospital that has consolidated a number of other rural hospitals. So it was under a network. Uh, okay, so- but but in the state of Iowa, do they have the three levels of exemptions, uh, philosophical, religious, and medical? Yes, they did. Okay. So, you know, this is challenging. I can tell you, I'm in Texas. We have all three levels. I applied for an exemption actually based on uh, two things. Is uh, One, I said I had a strongly held religious belief that not to take something harmful into my body, and I interpret this to be harmful. I also said I had a medical exemption, that I had already had COVID, and the published research suggests that I was excluded from the clinical trials, and if I took the shot, that I would have an increased risk of side effects. And so I applied for medical exemption. My doctor signed up for that, and I submitted it, and I got it. And our health system at the time liberally gave out exemptions. Um, so it seems so arbitrary and in your case may have been capricious. Uh, and this connection to the Iowa Medical Board is uh, disturbing. So you were ultimately cleared of these allegations for the Iowa Medical Board, but uh, can you just quickly enumerate what did they say you did wrong? Well, they say that I was spreading misinformation because uh, for financial reasons, because we were conducting research to develop a vaccine 
that would uh, ultimately compete with the COVID, the EUA um, established uh, COVID vaccines that were out there. Mm. Wow. Well, you know, a lot of people don't know that um, I was um, uh, I was a co-principal investigator of the Modulon vaccine program. So uh, we were proposing that a cell-based vaccine that was a, a, a similar to the BCG vaccine. And our clinical program involved vaccinating uh, nursing home workers. And uh, this was in early in 2020 before the messenger RNA vaccines came out. And we had NIH proposals and the company providing products. And we worked and worked and worked, uh, you know, FDA, NIH, Operation Warp Speed. And it was obvious it was going nowhere that the, the um, we, we found similar to what you, I imagine, found is the decisions were already made. They weren't going to consider any other ideas. Right. And that's what I experienced. Yeah. No other ideas. I was also the principal investigator, the overall principal investigator, the Remachiban program, a Japanese product, very safe. It's used for allergic rhinitis there, but it's anti-inflammatory, antihistamine, anticoagulant. And uh, we jumped through all of these hurdles. I put so much effort into this in 2020. Never was going to see the light of day that this was not going to get into the active program, was not going to get into Operation Warp Speed. The NIH had made uh, its decisions. So uh, you and I actually had similar, I was a full professor of medicine. I was well-funded by NIH and industry, had a big research team. Same thing, we ran into the same roadblocks. I didn't have the fallback of an external research organization or the uh, faith-based, uh, the biotech company or the the faith-based research organization, but you really, I think, made some strides. And it sounds like your message is a hopeful one. You you do have to stand up for your beliefs. You do have to lawyer up, I think, when um, uh, attacked, but you will prevail and you should prevail. And I think you can really hold your head up high that you've, you know, you've done something that's very inspirational to others. I think one of the advantages I had is I, I had private money at my disposal and that we could con that we can work on this research uh, hypothesis. And so we, we were able to accomplish some significant uh, research and attenuated vaccine development. If you have time, I can just highlight that very briefly. Yeah. Do we just have a few minutes left? Tell us a little bit about the innovation of the vaccine and what you see as a as a, you know, some bright spots uh, of a pathway forward, how we potentially would combat this or other viruses in the future. Well, I think it's going to I think it's going to require new technology uh, and not not using uh, con conventional historic technology. So um, we de we develop uh, a, a number of uh, three programs. One was to create uh, back, uh, the entire genomic, um, the genome of these uh, COVID vir viruses, and as a platform to create attenuated live vaccines. The second was to create a library of uh, COVID uh, genes that can produce a viral-like particle that could be delivered to the uh, respiratory tract. And then we created um, immortalized adult stem cells from uh, neonates to be used as a hopefully a manufacturing tool to produce these particles. 
But uh, the surprising thing uh, was that when we had these neonatal stem cells and the, um, in collaboration with the University of Iowa's BSL-3 facility, what we found is that these neonatal uh, cells were extremely resistant to, uh, to the Delta virus. And they all express all the prerequisite, um, you know, markers ACE2 receptor and the TMPRSS2 that was necessary to cause an infection. But uh, it was very difficult to derive any, observe any types of viral particles. And when you take uh, that same virus and challenge um, a viral cell, uh, you got tens of thousands of viral particles. So uh, this may explain why, you know, we don't see uh, viral infections um, in neonates and children because there's something that's unique in their cellular milieu that is preventing uh, them from being infected. So that is so interesting. Let me just summarize real quickly. So the Vero cells are these immortal cells, the immortal cell lines that are used over and over again to test if a virus infects the cell. And these these are essentially purchased by laboratories. But your cell line uh, was very unique. It it basically represented a cell line of of a of a child, right? Correct. And how did you how did you derive this cell line again? So what we did is we took uh, human somatic uh, stem cells from cord blood and placenta, okay. and mm -hmm. we immortalized them with CRISPR uh, oh, okay. so that they would be able to uh, have the same growth characteristics as the HEC-293, which is used as an abortive cell that is used mm -hmm. uh, ubiquitously in, uh, in the industry. And so we made sure that they express the ACE2 receptor and TMPSR2, um, which is the uh, proteolytic enzyme that allows the, uh, the virus to enter into the cell. Um, and we handed them over to, to the university and have them try to infect it with their standard dosing uh, protocol. And it, it, was, it was almost impossible uh, to get these cells to um, grow uh, viruses. So um, comparing that to Avera cell, which is a standard monkey cell line, which is used as an established model system for coronaviruses, um, you know, there were, these human cells were extremely resistant to infection. So um, there's something in these children's cells that outside of the, the known prerequisite uh, markers uh, to cause an infection, there's something unique in them that is um, evading the infection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's actually a very, very interesting discovery. That discovery in alone and by itself is important. It goes to show you that independent research is very, very important that it makes uh, significant contributions. And I think one of the most disturbing things is that how all intellectual interchange was shut down, intellectual curiosity was uh, completely shunned, and anybody bringing any other idea outside of what was already pre-baked in the government narrative was, was out. So I'm so glad actually you prevailed against the Iowa Medical Board. Um, you, like me, have, have actually lost your clinical job. I've lost two now, and now I'm on a third. I'm happy to be, you know, seeing patients again. 
but I think you really have made uh, substantial contributions through all of this, particularly your efforts of directly dealing with HHS. Do you have any final words on future directions and kind of leaving us for a positive note on the McCullough Report? Well, I think um, I'm happy to see that finally people are, are acknowledging that uh, these vaccines don't uh, provide, uh, prevent against transmission. I, I think uh, the public has uh, decided that, you know, they are unhappy with mRNA vaccines. And so I think it does open a future where uh, newer methodologies, new methods and innovations that can try to stimulate resp respiratory mucosal immunity uh, against uh, these respiratory viruses. I think there is a potential future for that. Mm, okay, well, that sounds that sounds terrific. We'll let that be the the last word. Uh, sounds like it's hopeful for vaccines in the future. And you know we have to learn from big mistakes. I, I still don't think there has been enough capitulation on the messenger RNA vaccines. They need to come off the market. There simply have been far too many injuries, disabilities, and deaths. And, um, and we need a careful re-examination of pandemic response. We've been talking to Dr. Alan Moy. Alan, thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. And Peter, just one more thing. If people want to um, uh, hear a summary of this, um, there's a video on Rumble on our channel that they can go to for JP2 MRI. Okay, very good. Well, we'll include that in, in the show notes. And as this comes forward uh, for our audience, which is a, a big worldwide audience, but we do have a lot of medical professionals listening and wishing you the best and everybody listening to the McCullough Report. Uh, we've been talking to Dr. Alan Moy, uh, internal medicine, pulmonary critical care research scientist, and someone who is advancing novel technology forward for vaccines. Thank Let's you, get Peter. real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.